0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Good morning, church. And man, it feels good to finally be back up and uh, appreciate the break for Clint and uh, Fritz stepping in for me. Uh, it's great to sit into, under their teaching, but man, it feels good to be back. I want to invite you in your Bibles to the Old Testament to Nehemiah. But you know, no matter our age, no matter our gender, our career, our financial status, our talent level, whatever it might be, from the youngest in here to the oldest, we are all looking and we're all kind of moving towards something all the time. No matter who we are, we're always working towards success. Or we all have in our minds this kind of desired outcome, and we're doing it all the time, whether we realize it or not. But success is such a tricky thing. First of all, it's hard to define. Because what you might have in your mind is a desirable outcome, a measure of success. I might have something totally different. Have you ever told your children to go clean the room? You probably have a different mental picture of what success looks like. You know, you just want to be able to walk across the floor without stepping on a Lego. You know, for them, they just kind of walk in and, oh, it must be pretty clean, and, and they leave. You have different ideas of what success looks like. Depending on your personality. You and your spouse might have different pictures of success for a date night. You know? You might want to go sit around some dirt track and watch cars go round and round and round. And she probably doesn't. Or maybe vice versa. But you have different pictures of what success might look like. You know, for some people going to work, you might think, well, I do that every day. There's nothing successful about that. That is until you have a friend that is really depressed, and for them, just to get out of bed, and to get dressed, and to go to work, I mean, that's a huge success. So hopefully, we all have pictures of success for being husbands and and wives and mothers and fathers and, and bosses and employees, that hopefully we all have a picture of success for our families for our jobs, our friends, our school, but it can be different than other people. But another thing why success is so tricky, not only is it hard to define, but we can forget that the process to that desired outcome, that end result, can be just as important as that end result. How we get there is just as important. Take success, maybe your idea, you know what, I'm going to Detail my car. Well, one of the things you could do, you could get those supplies ready, get out that water hose, and you could put that, that sweat into that car, and you could get it clean. Or you could go steal $100 and pay someone else to do it. The desired outcome, it's there. Both got to a detailed car. But how you get there is just as important. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, and, man, we all kind of hit a certain age, and, man, we'd all like to see a little bit lower number on the scale. You know, we could put in the hard work, and we could eat right, and we can exercise, or we could just cut off a leg. And you know what? thing is, same result, lower number on the scale. But how you get there is just as important as that outcome yeah, so I want to relate this to what we're going to talk about this morning: success. How you define success as a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, a, a student, a boss, employee? Hopefully, we have an idea of what success looks like. You know, I once heard you never start building something unless you have an end in mind, because it's going to get bigger and more expensive if you don't have a picture. But how would you define success for a church? Meaning what, what is it? What is it that makes a church successful? Well, we might have a lot of different ideas. We might think you judge a church, oh, that's a successful church by the number of people that they have. The more people in your mind could mean more success. Remember in seminary, I was in a youth class, and one of our jobs we were going to go around that semester to look at all these other churches and uh, go and sit with their youth groups, watch what they do, sit down with the youth pastor, get to interview him. And we had to decide as a group which churches to go look at. And one guy spoke to me and said, I, I think this is easy. Why aren't we even talking about this? We just pick the five biggest churches in town, and those are the ones we go to because they have to be doing it right. And so in his mind, success is a lot of people. Or we might say a church is successful, and they have to have a certain amount of program. Look at that. And, man, if a church doesn't do that, then they're not being successful. Quality of their facilities. Oh, a successful church. Oh, they have, need this or that. I once had a person tell me we're not a real church because we don't have a steeple. Well, I looked in the New Testament. I can't find that, but, but okay. But, you know, for them, success was a certain look that a, that a church should have. Type of music. Quality of their small groups. A successful church has to have X number of missionaries or go on a certain number of mission trips. Or We might say the size of their offering or their budget. The, these could be things that we would look at and say, oh, that is a successful church. And all these, man, they I think they're very important. Problem is, we, we tend to judge by the things that are easiest to count. You know, we say nickels and noses, number of people in the budget, but... There's so many things to look at, but how do you define success for a church? But remember, it's also just as important how you get to that desired outcome. We have to be really careful, and if we're not careful, in fact, all areas of our lives, our family, career, church, school, we can focus on what success looks like, and we can lose sight of that it's just as important And how we get there. So over the next several weeks, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at kind of Bethel Bible Church. And and what is it that we're about? And we're calling this series A Better Way. Not a better way that we're not comparing ourselves to everybody else. But me as an interviewer, what is a better way that I can live my life? What is my identity? What am I searching for? What am I pursuing? What is my success? But I believe Scripture is Crystal clear about what success for a church actually depends on. There's a lot of pictures of what success is, but I believe Scripture is clear on how we are to get there. I Man, we have to be really, really careful because we can easily lose sight of what success, and I would say, hinges on. In fact, the success of our church, the success of this campus, of Bethel Bible Church, it depends on one thing and one thing only. It's going to look different, and there's all these things we could measure, we could look at, but our success, it depends on one thing and one thing only, and we must get this right. And I say it this way, our success is found in how we handle, revere, and live by God's Word. Because listen, we can strive and we can focus on all the things that I just listed earlier to be successful. But if we do not handle, we do not revere, and we do not live by God's word, it will all be for nothing. So to show us this this morning, I want to show us an amazing picture from Nehemiah. It's an amazing picture of what we're going to see. And it's so important and it it's so vital to what the idea of how you get to success It's in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have found Nehemiah, find that chapter. What I do, I try to find Psalms and Proverbs and then just head west. Turn back to your left a little bit, and hopefully you land in Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 8. And so what I would love to do this morning, I would love to please one last time to ask you to stand. Because we're about to read something that hasn't been seen for 200 years. Not since the days of Josiah had the people experienced this. And it is a remarkable scene. So beginning in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Methathiah, Shemal, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Mashiach. On his right hand was Padiah, Mishael, Mahijah, Meshum, Heshedaniah, Zachariah, Meshulam. And on his left hand, and Ezra opened the book of the law in sight of all the people. For he was above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Beni, Cherubiah, Jamin, Akub, Sheathiah, Hodiah, Mashiach, Kalitha, Azaniah, Josabad, Nahum, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. He read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that people understood the reading. Thus saith the Lord. You may be seated. I will say, if you're looking for a baby name, there's about 26 that I promise... Nobody has. But here's what I want to do. I want us to look back and to kind of get a better understanding of of what we just read because of the significance of this passage. You see, about 150 years before this, the entire nation of Israel, Israel and Judah, were taken into captivity and conquered by the Babylonians. So they were ripped from their land, they were ripped from their homes, and they were taken to Babylon. So for 60 years now they've lived under the complete control of the Babylonians. And in Daniel 5, Persia, they come in and they conquer Babylon. And King Cyrus then allows for the Jews to return to their land. And it goes in several waves. The first wave is led by Zerubbabel. And he returned home to take the people back to rebuild the temple. It had been utterly destroyed. Well, a second wave. For 83 years, this group have waited. And they finally leave, led by Ezra. They're going to complete the temple work. They're going to redecorate. Well, then a third group of exiles, several years later, returns from Babylon under the direction of Nehemiah. If you were to turn to Nehemiah 1, he asks someone, Tell me about Jerusalem. And they tell him about the, the city is laying in ruins. Yes, the temple is, is rebuilt, but the city is just in ruins. And Nehemiah weeps over what he is hearing. Because a wall meant a great deal to the city. The wall meant protection from outsiders. The wall meant commerce where you would bring your goods and you would buy and you would sell. If you had a dispute, you would go to the wall at the gate and someone would hear the case and and they would decide what could do and it meant order. In fact, a wall, it meant life. And so Nehemiah, he is going to lead. It's one of the most incredible success stories of of leadership that, that we could ever probably read. But I want to show you a picture, just to kind of wrap our minds around what we're reading. So this is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 225 acres. This wall reaches around this city, and it's about two and a half miles long. On average, it stands about 35 feet and 8 feet wide. So this is a massive undertaking. And for 140 years, those walls lay in ruin. But they are rebuilt in only 52 days. But it isn't just 52 days of 65 degree weather and a nice cool breeze and, and no problems. This wall was being built under the constant surveillance of their enemies. And they were under constant attack. In fact, at one time, they took the workers that were working the wall and broke them into two groups. A half had to stand guard while the other half worked. They constantly tried to discredit Nehemiah. In fact, they had a a plot to bring him into the temple to talk, to kill him. But he saw right through it. In fact, in the latter stages, it says that the workers held a tool in one hand and a sword in the other just to finish the wall. And it is a remarkable example of success and leadership. But it's what happens next that is so vital to their success. See, Nehemiah 7 ends with the completion of the wall. But they know with the completion, people probably went back to their homes. They went back to their land. For 52 days, they had left everything they had to focus on the wall. There were crops that needed to be tended to. There were homes that needed attention. There were animals that that needed to be dealt with. So they go back, but they know that just around the corner is one of the most sacred and celebrated times of the year. It was called the Feast of the Booths or the Feast... Of the tabernacles. And what it marked was the end of the harvest season, the end of the agricultural year. And it was one of the three major pilgrimages that people would travel back to the holy city. So the people would come, and it was a celebration that went on for 15 days. For seven days, the people gathered in Jerusalem. Then for eight days, you would disperse to the land and you would build a hut. A temporary housing to live in. It was a time to remember the exodus. It was a time to remember their dependence on God's will. So what's happening? They go back to their homes. They go back to to the things they needed to focus on. The people soon begin gathering back in Jerusalem. So with that in mind, I I want to go back to these verses and walk through them. So look at verse 1. It says, And all the people, they gathered as one man. So the people, they, they come together and they're one. That unity was essential. Man, as a church, this should be our focus. That when we gather, we're not coming as just an individual. When we come together, we are coming as one. And that has huge implications. That means gathering is the church, it's not always about me. It's not always what I want or what I think is best. There's something more important than my opinions and my likes and my dislikes and my perspective. Unity is more important. When I read this, I think about a wedding. And I try to say this at every wedding I perform, is that anyone can get married. But it is God that can take two people of different personalities of different likes and talents and perspectives. And he can make them one. Anybody can get married. But only God can make two people one. And I think this is how God sees the church. And how we should see it. The church It's made up of a bunch of individuals. But we're one. We're to be unified. And it's like the parts of a body. They're all important. But I love this next part. They gather as one into the square before the water gate. Notice not the temple. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the people commanded Israel. So the people asked, they commanded, they cried out to Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses out. Meaning they were hungry, they they were thirsty for the word of God. So they gathered collectively. They all came together collectively to the desire to hear the word of the Lord. And listen, they had accomplished so much already. Rebuilt the temple. They'd redecorated the temple. They'd rebuilt the wall in 52 days. And listen, there was still work to be done. In fact, it tells us that many homes were still laying in rubble. But they stopped and they came together with a desire for God's word. Meaning they didn't allow the work to distract them from the word. And for me, listen, I know this is a personal battle. that I think I face each and every week we wake up and there are so many things to do. Man, there are things that we have set up before that week, things to accomplish, good things, great things, people to care for, meaningful things. But if we're not careful, we can allow the work to distract us from the word. So now notice who's there, verse 2. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, And he read from it facing the square before the water gate. From early in the morning until midday. For probably five to six hours. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. The ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Meaning it was for everyone. For men and women, young and old They were not gathered together in their secluded parts of the temple. They came together as one. They collectively as one, men and women, young and old, they came together to hear the word of God. But not only did they assemble as one, it says they were attentive. They were focused. They were fixed upon the word of God and nothing else. It's all that mattered. In fact, there's not a Hebrew word for this word, attentive. It meant, it says this, that their eyes or their ears were to the book. Man, they were attentive. It was all that mattered. In fact, this week I finished reading The Hiding Place by Corey Boon, of a young woman that went through the horrors of the concentration camps in Germany. And I was just overwhelmed by her desire. For God's word and her sister Betsy. Of all the things they had. Four ratted uh, together gospels. That's all they had. The pages were worn and they were torn. They were living in these horrible conditions. They said the smell alone was unbearable. And each day after working 11 hours in these sweatshops. They would gather in the back of their barracks. Where the one light bulb. And they would gather around the reading of God's word. Man, they had a passion. They were attractive. They were attentive. Their eyes and their ears were to the book and nothing else mattered. So here's the scene. The people had finished working nonstop for 52 days. They go home for a little bit. And I bet it was refreshing. Man, I'm finally home. Man, I can tend to those sheep. I can fix that fence. I can finally uh, harvest that crop that I've been waiting on. So they return home to take care of those personal things. But they know soon we're going to gather back in the holy city. We're going to go back to Jerusalem because the Feast of the Booths, one of the celebrated times of the year, is almost here. So slowly people begin making their way into Jerusalem. They see their friends and they wave. That person they'd worked alongside building that wall and before long, there's this huge crowd gathered before the water gate. One family and then another. And before long, they're all gathered there together. And it says as one. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're somewhere, but there is just this sense of unity that, that you almost can't explain. You didn't really do anything. It, it just, it just kind of happens. But you can feel it. And the people are there, they're gathered in one accord. And then all of a sudden, there is this cry for Ezra, God's priest, their friend, their leader, to bring out the word of God and to read it to us. Before the people, there's this large platform that it says it has been built for this purpose. And they're crying out, Ezra, Ezra, come before us and read from the word of God. Slowly, I think they begin to see a shadow. Heads begin moving. It's that, that Ezra. Begins to make his way to the front. and They're wondering, does he have the scroll? Send to see sea in his hand. Maybe that's it. And all of a sudden, you begin to see movement behind him. What are they doing? It looks like there's some other men coming with Ezra. Just look at verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they made for this purpose. And beside him stood Methathiah, Shammah, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Mashiach. And on his right was Padiah, Mishael, Malhajah, Meshum, Hashedaniah, Zachariah, and Meshelam on his left. Imagine people begin wondering, what's happening? What are they doing? Ezra is there standing holding the word of God. And he has six men on his right and six men standing on his left. But this next part, it it gives me chills every time I read it. The people are there. They're seated and they're looking at this platform. And here stands Ezra holding this scroll these men are, are, sitting on, are standing on his right and on his left. And look at what happens in verse 5. Ezra doesn't say a word. He opened the book in sight of all of the people. For he was above them all. And as he opened it, all the people stood. I mean, Ezra can be seen by everyone. And as he simply begins to open the scroll without saying a word in unison, they stand. Now, I get this picture that no one, that no one had to say a word. It was just the Spirit of the Lord moved among the people. And when that scroll began to unopen, the people stood. Notice what Ezra does in verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Ezra blessed the Lord, not the people. But the Lord, the Lord was made much of. The Lord was exalted. The Lord was praised. It wasn't, hey, gather in the city and celebrate. Look at what we have been able to accomplish. No, they came together and they remembered what the Lord had done. I believe Ezra reads about God's faithfulness to his people. He reads about God's deliverance for the captives. He reads about God's provision for providing for his children. He reads about his faithfulness in forgiving the sin and the rebellion of the children. And he praises God for all he is and what he has done. But notice the response, the three responses of the people. It says they answered amen And amen. They were saying, yes, Ezra, we are in agreement with what you are reading. We are in agreement. We affirm the authority of the scripture in our lives. They lifted their hands. And I I think this was a symbolic cry of showing we are in need and we are hungry for the words of the Lord. They bowed their faces to the ground to show a sense of humility and submission before God Almighty. What a great reminder and a picture for us that we come together and even in our individual lives, are we affirming God's scripture, his word as the ultimate authority in our lives? Because I think often we come to God's word as like a buffet. We like to pick the things we like and the things that are easy and those are what we will focus on. But we should take the whole counsel. We should take the whole counsel of Scripture as the ultimate and final authority in our lives. Man, are we we in hunger? Are we in need? Do we recognize our need? And do we have a hunger for God's Word as they lifted their hands? Do we bow in humility to submit our lives and lay our agendas before the Lord? But there's more. Look at verse 7. Jeshua and Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Cheathiah, Hodiah, Mashiach, Kalitha, Azaniah, Jozebad, Hanah, and Peliah, in the Levites. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense that the people understood the reading, meaning it wasn't enough just to have the word read. It was just as important to make sure that the people understood. You see, during this time, what happened, there was a major change. There was a major shift that happened. First of all, the printing press hadn't even come around. There wasn't copies of the Bibles of the scrolls in in people's homes. They were kept in the synagogues, and they were precious because they were so rare, But also while the people were in captivity. When they came out that what was being written and what was being spoken. It wasn't Hebrew anymore. Ever since their time in captivity the language shifted to Aramaic. Aramaic was what was taught and what was learned. So Ezra reads. But the men standing with him are there to go out into the crowd to help them understand. Because we must first hear before we can understand, so that we then can obey. So Ezra speaks to the crowd, and then the men, it's, it's like they begin to move them out in the crowd and kind of gather into these little small groups so they can help the people understand. Meaning that's our job. I mean, I love to teach and to preach but that isn't enough. We, we need to help each other to make sure that we're understanding. That's why our life groups are so important. Our men's and women's Bible studies, a time where our children and our adults and our youth are gathering around God's Word. And if you are in that group, you are there to help. Because you might have a question that helps someone else, or you might have an insight that, that God uses in the life of someone else. And I would say moms and dads, especially in our homes. It's not just enough to pull up the scripture and thumb through it quickly on our phones and iPads. Are we stopping to make sure we are understanding? And then are we taking it upon ourselves to help those that are in our home? Because it isn't enough just to read or to hear the words of the sacred pages. We must work to understand. And it takes us working Together. So, you know, there's so many ways to think about the success of a church. You know, I I probably have my list and the things I'm concerned about and the things I'm looking for, and you probably have yours too. But our success, I'm convinced, doesn't hinge on how many campuses we launch into communities. When God looks at our success, it isn't going to be how many small groups we have. He isn't going to really look and say, well, you know, their attendance was good here, but they slacked off here, so I'm going to give them a B+. Plus. He doesn't look at how great our facilities are or even how many programs we might offer people. Our success hinges on how we handle, how we revere, and how we live by God's Word. Because the living power of the Bible should be more important than any church building or program because it is through the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit brings people from death to life. It's through the Scriptures that He brings us to abundant life and life everlasting. So as a church, we need to make sure that we are committed to handling, revering, and living by God's Word Above everything else. Because then what happens in and through the church really is a byproduct of how we respond to the Bible. Because listen, we can do a lot of great things. We can have a great vision. But you know what? If you have a vision that can be fulfilled without you revering and handling and obeying this word, we need a different vision. I mean, you can have all the great programs. You can have uh, a thousand missionaries all over the world. And we could do a lot of great things, but if we're not handling, revering, and living by this Word, it'll all be for nothing. So I believe our success as individuals, as as Christians, as moms, and dads, and employers, and employees, as students, and as a church is found in how we handle, revere, and live by God's Word.